Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I serve as the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. What do you think is the most important turning point in history? Do you think it might be the end of World War II, the signing of a major treaty? Or maybe it has to do with inventions that really change how people live in the world, like maybe the invention of electricity. Is that the most important turning point in history? You know, there are moments in history which are like hinges in history, just like the hinges that a door turns on, swings on. Massive changes hinge on certain moments. And those are moments that make all the other moments seem ordinary, maybe of very little consequence in comparison. Today we read of a moment in history that's not just a hinge in history, but it's the hinge of eternity. It's the moment that your salvation, Christian, was accomplished. It's the moment that Jesus died. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at the second half of verse 16, 16 through 30. It begins with, so they took Jesus. Let me read for us as you follow along. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, you have taught us in your word that the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of you blow on it. And surely we, the people, are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but your word, Lord, will stand forever. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen. What I want you to walk away convinced of this afternoon is that sovereign King Jesus' shameful death accomplished your salvation. Sovereign King Jesus's shameful death accomplished our salvation. Now, the sermon this afternoon has two points to it. I'll tell them to you now, and I'll tell them to you later as well. The first is our sovereign king shamed. Our sovereign king shamed. And the second is our selfless king's sacrifice. Our selfless king's sacrifice. First, our sovereign king shamed. And we see that in verses 16 through 24. There is no way to estimate accurately how many people the Roman Empire crucified. It's likely that it's in the hundreds of thousands, maybe the millions. When Rome, for example, put down the rebellion led by Spartacus, the leader of that Greek society on the south portion of the Greek peninsula, 6,000 Spartans were taken captive, and all 6,000 were crucified one by one all along a 200-meter stretch of road leading from the south part of Italy up to Rome in the north. That would mean if we were driving along that road or walking along that road, we would pass a bloodied man nailed to a cross until he suffocated every 30 meters and that stretch of road was roughly the same distance as from Ras al-Khaimah to Abu Dhabi. Every 30 meters. So that horrible form of execution that Jesus underwent was common, actually. And so it might have seemed ordinary to pass out of the gates of Jerusalem during the time when the Romans were occupying Israel and see dying men nailed to various crosses. But this crucifixion that we're reading about in John's gospel is a crucifixion unlike any before it or any after it. We're told that they took Jesus and they went out of the city gates with him to the place of the skull called Golgotha in Aramaic. And there they crucified him along with two other men. We don't know who they were. John doesn't tell us much about them, nothing really. And he doesn't detail the individual steps that they went through to crucify him. John does remind us that Jesus was bearing his own cross, but of course that would have been the single horizontal cross beam where his hands would eventually have been tied, nailed 
He doesn't remind us how Jesus would have been beaten to a bloody pulp through scourging with a whip before this. He doesn't explain how they would have nailed Jesus' hands to the crossbeam and then hoisted him up, fixing it to the post. There's, there's no description of his feet being nailed to the post and, and then him give, being given a small wooden ledge on the post to rest himself as his energy sapped away. That little ledge was not there to help him. It was actually there to extend his suffering. The goal in crucifixion was suffocation of the prisoner as they gradually lost the energy to to pull themselves up and, and get a breath until they eventually asphyxiate. Sometimes crucified men would hang on the cross for days days. And if they weren't dead yet and they needed to go about their business, the soldiers would come along and break their legs, limiting their ability to pull themselves up and and get a breath. Crucifixion was a shameful way to die. John doesn't tell us all of that detail, but what John does want us to focus our attention on is those who were responsible for treating Jesus so shamefully. If you imagine that this passage, 16 to 30, is like a movie scene, it would have had four basic camera angles moving from more public to more private and intimate and ultimately fixed on Jesus, strangely alone in the midst of a crowd where he breathed his last breath. The first scene that John wants us to witness is an argument between Pilate and the Jews. The Jews had manipulated Pilate into crucifying Jesus. Of course, Pilate was far from innocent. He could have stopped the whole wicked plot. He had seen that Jesus wasn't guilty of what the Jews were accusing him of. He didn't deserve death. But he was weak. He was self-serving. He gave in. It was common to put a placard up on the cross indicating what this crucified criminal was being charged with. And so Pilate had written on a plaque, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But the Jews didn't like that. They wanted Pilate to change it to, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate, in putting this placard up, he was getting a last dig in at the Jews. He wanted to humiliate those who had humiliated him. And so he wasn't going to back down. So he answers, what I've written, I have written. Now, Pilate and the Jews are ignorant of the great wickedness that they're committing. The bloodied and broken Jesus, who's slowly choking to death on the cross nearby, is just a pawn in their game of trying to control and manipulate each other. They're shaming Jesus to the fullest extent. And then our author pans the camera down closer to Jesus, to the foot of the cross, where the soldiers are. They've lost interest in what's happening to Jesus. They've scourged him, driven him to Golgotha, nailed him to the cross, hoisted him up. He's naked. He's bloody. But they don't see that. They're kneeling on the ground casting lots for his clothes. Who gets those? This almost dead Jew is of no use to them. 
They only see value in his old, bloodied clothes. Jesus' shame portrays to us the shame that our sin brings to us. And we should remember that there were hundreds of thousands of other men who had been crucified and who would be crucified. But what makes this crucifixion different is that this man was a glorious man. This man was a man without guilt. This man was the man who, from eternity past, had shared the same glory as the Father. And he still had it, although it was veiled. And so they were shaming the glorious one. All the other men who had hung on a cross were made in the image of God, but this was God on the cross. Guilt is the reason that Adam and Eve hid in the garden after disobeying the Lord. Shame is the reason that they covered themselves with fig leaves. And every one of us has sinned. And we know that instinct, that that gut reaction to run to the darkness, to cover it up, don't we? Because it's shameful. Jesus' uncovered, uncensored shame depicts who we really are apart from the cleansing and sanctifying work of Christ. There's a reason that the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The shamed Jesus depicts the shame of our sin. If we don't understand the gravity of our sin and the desperate situation that it plunges us into apart from Christ, the gospel will not seem all that important to us. Who needs a Savior if you don't need saving from anything? Who needs to be washed if you're not unclean? Jesus, shamed and despised, hanging on the cross, helps us understand the depths of our sin. Do you understand the shame that your sin has brought you? You must if you want to understand how much you and I need a Savior. See the shame of our crucified Savior, and you can see all that you've been cleansed of by His work on the cross. Jesus is, on the one hand, a victim of unimaginable cruelty, and yet despite all of this shameful treatment, Jesus is the sovereign king carrying out His plan to save people. We see that in multiple places through these verses 16 through 24. It's no mistake that John tells us Jesus bore his own cross. He had chosen his mission, this course of action to rescue his people. This was the reason that he had come from heaven, the reason that he had taken on the form of a man and lived his life in perfect obedience to the Father. So what seemed like a tragic failure on that day was, in fact, Jesus carrying out His plan. Jesus had told His disciples and the Jews back in John chapter 10 
For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus is in control. Make no mistake. It's no mistake as well that the placard announcing him as the king of Jews is written in the three most common languages in the known world, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. It's it's an indication and a hint that this crucified king is indeed the king of the Jews, but he's in fact the king of all people for the whole world. Jesus is the sovereign king of everyone and everything, and he is in complete control of all that's being done to him because he was coming into the world not to save only Jews, but the nations. Isaiah 52, 14 says about Jesus, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. Those who speak Aramaic and Latin and Greek, those who speak Chinese and, and Swahili and Arabic, Spanish and Pidgin and Hindi speakers can have Jesus as their saving sovereign king. And that's why your presence in Dubai is no accident if you're a Christian. This is a country with over 200 nationalities, and God has put each and every single one of you here. You may think that you came for a job, but you actually were brought here for a calling if you're a Christian. Are you looking for opportunities to share the gospel with the nations that God has brought here to Dubai? Of course, we do that individually in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces, and we do it together as a church as well. Are you inviting people to church? Many of you are. I want to encourage you to do it all the more. One survey showed that 82% of people said that they would come to church if a friend invited them. Do you know what percentage of Christians invite their friends? Two. Two percent. Be praying for opportunities to share the good news of Christ with those around you. Let's bring the nations in to hear the good news of the saving work of King Jesus. Jesus' sovereign control of his own crucifixion is revealed further when you consider that even as Pilate answered the Jews, what I have written, I have written, we know that what Pilate wrote on Jesus' placard was more true than he could have ever imagined. Jesus was and is the king of the Jews. He wrote to mock the Jews, but we know that he wrote it because King Jesus intended him to write it. John tells us by quoting Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, when he tells us in verse 24 about what the soldiers did. The soldiers, in their callous bartering for Jesus' clothes, were doing what Christ intended as well. That psalm, Psalm 18, written by King David, this was to fulfill that scripture. It said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
You see, Psalm 22 is a psalm written by King David about himself, about his experiences, but more importantly, he wrote it directed by the Spirit of God to really be about his eventual descendant, King Jesus. It's no mistake that John adds, after quoting Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, so the soldiers did these things. They had to. They had to fulfill what Scripture had spoken. Jesus is in control, and even those who are committing grave sins against Him must act in ways that fulfill Scripture. The sovereignty of Jesus over His own crucifixion should continually flood our hearts with wonder and awe that God in Christ is so powerful and in control of all that happens gives us great confidence that He will bring all of history to His desired end. What He says is going to happen will happen. We don't have to wonder if He can accomplish His purposes. We can sleep soundly and and trust Him in the midst of our hardships and pain, in the midst of wars and upheaval, knowing that we're secure in the hands of our sovereign King. His sovereignty, it isn't neutral either. We know that it's for our good. And that's made clear in verses 25 through 30 where we see our selfless king's sacrifice. That's the second point this afternoon, our selfless king's sacrifice. Verses 25 to 30, once again, John shifts our attention from those who were committing these great evils against Jesus to Jesus Himself. On the cross, suffering, and yet acting with the greatest selflessness that the world has ever seen. We see it first as he cares for his mother, despite all that he's going through. So while all the disciples, except the disciple whom Jesus loved, had fled, there were women from Jesus' family and his life who were standing by the cross. Sure, they were weeping. It's probably four women, including Mary, Jesus' mother. And Jesus knows He's going to die. He knows He's going to be raised. He knows He's going to ascend to heaven. And so, He attends to His mother's care. There's only one other time that Mary features in the Gospel of John, and it's there all the way back in chapter 2 of John where Jesus turns the water into wine. And just as he did there, Jesus addresses his mother as woman. That's how it's translated in your Bible, likely. Which, Which may seem insensitive, but it really has the feel of dear woman in the Greek. You and I have a king in Jesus, a savior of such tenderness and sympathy that there is no match for him. No one is more compassionate than Jesus. J.C. Ryle says of Jesus, the heart that even on the cross felt for Mary is a heart that never changes. Jesus never forgets any who love Him. And Christ will never forget you, brothers and sisters. The times we feel Christ has forgotten us are often the times of trial and hardship, aren't they? Times of loss, times of emptiness, 
times of discontent. Even Mary must have been experiencing one of the worst things that a mother could ever have experienced. Her worst nightmare that she could have ever had wouldn't have compared to seeing her son being crucified. The son that angels had announced when he was born. But Jesus is with her. Jesus is caring for her. He's securing her future even at that moment. And he's doing the same for you, fellow Christian. Some of you are wondering which way to turn in life. Maybe you're asking, where can I get a job? Or how can I survive in the job that I have? Some of you long to be married, but until now, the Lord hasn't brought that spouse that you hope for. And others of you may not be sure how many more weeks and months you can live with the spouse that God's given you. Your circumstances in life are not the indication of whether God loves you or not. Let me say that again. Your circumstances in life are not the indication of whether God loves you or not. The cross is proof positive that He loves you. It's the cross. That same heart of compassion and selflessness demonstrated by Jesus in His care for His mother guarantees that Jesus hasn't forgotten you. Do you love Him? Your love for Him could never match His love for you. In verses 28 through 30, John finally focuses our attention on Jesus and only Jesus. This is the most intimate moment with Him. And in it, we catch a glimpse of the bottomless depths of Christ's love for us with just five words that He spoke. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Jesus knew that the end was near, but His mission was not complete yet. And so, again, to fulfill the Scripture, He said, I thirst. Again, we see it there, right? He's the sovereign King, nailed to a cross, but in total control. And so when he says, I thirst, Jesus is quoting another psalm, Psalm 69, verse 21. Again, it's a psalm of King David, no surprise there. And in that psalm, the king is crying out to God for rescue from his enemies. Save me, O God. That's the first line from the psalm. And then in the verses approaching verse 21, the king says, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Those are things that describe Jesus and what he's experiencing. Christ has been totally abandoned. He's experiencing what our sins deserve. Some near the cross, of course, lifted a sponge full of sour wine to wet his dry throat. Of course, it's dry from 
trying to draw in those desperate breaths to keep breathing. But his last three words, those last three words are the most profound. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. What is finished? What was completed in that moment? Certainly his life was finished. And the murderous goal of the Jews had been accomplished. But we know they're not in control. Jesus is. And so to understand the answer we have to take into account all that John has told us in his gospel up to this point. And so we might think back to John chapter 1 where Jesus was announced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We might think of John chapter 8 where Jesus made it clear that man's greatest problem is that if they die in their sins, they will be forever subject to their master, Satan, and not God the Father. Jesus has told them many times throughout the Gospels that he must be lifted up, which is a clear reference indicating death on a cross. He's told them that he will lay down his life for his sheep. And against the backdrop of all that, here Jesus has shed his blood to the point of death. When? On the Passover. That day commemorating how the Israelites had each sacrificed a lamb and painted the blood on the door frames so that they would be spared as the angel of the Lord brought death to the firstborn of Egypt. Not to them. Year after year, for hundreds of years, the Israelites had sacrificed a spotless lamb on the Passover. And then in all the other feasts and festivals, they had brought sacrifices to the temple. Lambs and bulls and goats. Why? Why? Why all those sacrifices? Why all that blood spilled? For the forgiveness of sins. But all those sacrifices were to get the Israelites ready to witness not a sacrifice presented to God so much as one great sacrifice that God would present to them and for them. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 1 to 7. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. 
as it is of written, written of me in the scroll of the book. What Jesus finished on the cross was the great once and for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in Him as King and Savior has their sins washed away. His sufferings were finished. The sacrificial system was finished. But most importantly, our redemption was finished when Jesus bowed His head and gave up His spirit. This was not a cry of defeat, but a cry of victory. What Christ accomplished through his death was the atonement for our sins. You may know that word, atonement. In the late 1400s, the English linguist and Bible scholar William Tyndale translated the Greek and Hebrew Bible into English. At the time, it was illegal for people to have the Bible in their own language. He did it illegally. There was no single English word at the time that fully captured what Christ's work of sacrifice on the cross accomplished. And William Tyndale wanted to make sure that he described it accurately. Reconciliation was close because it described a restored relationship between God and man, but it didn't capture how Christ had accomplished it. And so Tyndale invented a word, atonement. It literally means at one meant. It describes both the payment of the penalty for our sin and the restored relationship that we have with God as a result of that payment. Two becoming one Because a debt has been paid. Atonement. Full atonement for us is what Christ finished on the cross. He paid the penalty for sin. He took the wrath of God that we deserved. Try for just a moment to imagine all that Christ paid for on the cross. All of the sins of all of those who would trust in Him throughout all ages. I mean, it's it's staggering. It's almost incomprehensible. Just for example, all of your sin and my sin, all the sins for all of our lives, past, present, and future, everyone in this room who has trusted in Christ, all that sin, that's a lot of sin. But that alone is staggering, a staggering amount of sin. We took on a blood debt to God for every sin that we've committed. Sins through our actions, through our words, through our thoughts even. Now imagine that for the whole of the world today. The sins of the millions of people around the world who have trusted in Christ. How much sin is that? Murder, theft, Anger, adultery, and the list goes on and on and on. But that's not all the sin that he atoned for on the cross, is it? He paid the penalty for all the sins of all the saints from the centuries and the millennia past and maybe the millennia to come. And if he should postpone his return, there will be almost infinite amount of sin that he, had, that he will have paid the price for on the cross. 
even the sins of some who aren't born yet. Brothers and sisters, Jesus paid it all for you. If you're trusting in Christ, don't think for one moment that there are some sins that Christ has forgiven and some which he just can't stomach. You just went too far. No. No. His blood paid it all. As the song, It Is Well, says, My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. The punishment of all your sins was poured out on Jesus 2,000 years ago on the cross. Because Jesus said, It is finished, you can be assured that your salvation is complete if you're looking to Him in faith. Listen to Robert Murray McShane. He says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners even the chief of sinners live much in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. Feel His all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and rest assured in His almighty arms. If you're not a Christian, what do you make of this Jesus on the cross? Do you have any sense that you've fallen short of God's perfect righteousness. <laughs> I mean, in a given week, I can't even, can't even meet my own expectations for myself. How in the world can we meet God's designed plan for us? He made us to walk in complete righteousness. If you have any sense that you're a sinner like us, do you have the eyes of faith to see in this tragic situation of Jesus dying on the cross, the greatest victory that the world will ever know? Do you see it? If you do, will you trust Him? Confess your sin to Him and put your faith in Him and your sins, all of them, will be washed away. One famous hymn puts it this way, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Trust in Christ and your sin debt to God can be finished. Some of you um, may have heard that um, my wife, Joanne, her mother died yesterday. Uh, Joanne is on her way there to Memphis, Tennessee in the United States to be with her sisters, and I'm sure I'll follow soon. Nancy Poole was her name. She was 94, and her body was failing. And she breathed her last yesterday. But because our sovereign King Jesus gave himself up to be 
shamefully killed, the glorious one, and sacrificed as the Lamb of God on the cross, she's with him now. She knew her sin. She believed in the Savior, the one who died for the sins of all who would repent and trust in him. You know what verse 30 describes? It's both the lowest, most grievous point in all of Scripture, even all of history, the most evil thing that's ever happened. And yet it's the great mountain peak. It's the pinnacle. It's, it's both the Mariana Trench, the deepest, darkest part of the ocean, and it's also the Mount Everest of mountains. It contains the greatest evil in all of history and the greatest good. It's that hinge of history on which all moments pivot, even all the moments in eternity. Because, you know, when we've been there 10,000 years with Jesus... We won't lose track of what's gone before. No. We'll still be singing that new song with the angels in heaven. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Indeed, it's finished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your mercy and your grace, your kindness and your love are unfathomable to us. And so we want to keep looking to Jesus. We want to keep gazing at him on the cross. We want to keep turning to him ten times for every one time that we see our sin. And we know that he will become sweeter and sweeter and sweeter to us. We praise you for Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing about the deep, deep love.